in week four of um, our God First series, and I should just tell you like how this thing got started. Um, it really all started with a basic need that we have. Obviously, we're meeting in a facility that's not our own right now, and our agreement with the, the school district is that we won't be here forever, and so we have to have another place to meet. So the time has come for us to kind of face that challenge of building, um, of building our own facility. And um, just the, the reality that we, that we have to do that um, kind of kindled in us like a, a vision about what that could mean for the outreach of our church. We, we started to look at the areas uh, uh, where people who, who come to White Pine are from, and we realized that if we're really, really strategic about where we build that building, we could get a lot better at reaching more people in our region. And that's an important thing for us because... There's no other church like White Pine anywhere between Portland and, say, Brunswick or Topsom. I mean, it's, 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 we're like the only one like us. I'm not saying we're the only church that, you know, shares God's truth with people, but um, there's no other church that's anything like ours. And so we really feel like we have a responsibility to have a regional impact. And if we, if we build this new facility in exactly the right spot, then uh, we're going to get a lot better at that than, than we are right now. And then all of that just kind of opened our eyes to an even bigger challenge when we realized that this fundraising need that we have could actually be something that God uses to change us from the inside out, to actually make us people who are more like Jesus in the way that we practice generosity. And so we kind of took a step back and said, hey, let's go for all-out transformation. Let's just not raise money, but let's try to let God go to work on our hearts. And that's the process that we're in right now. And, you know, we split it up into three different sections. We started with commitment, like what, right at the heart level, what has to change inside of us. And we're in our second week now of vision. How do we need to see the world differently if we're going to maximize our impact for God? And then, starting next week, we'll get um, down specifically uh, to generosity, how we, how we manage the resources that um, God has entrusted to us. And there are some folks who were kind of ahead of others in this. In fact, on Friday night, we had what we call an advanced commitment night. And several of you were a part of that, where you said, I'm ready now to make a, a commitment to God. You know, God's been working in me, and I'm ready to do that. And it was awesome. We had a great time together. And there's a whole bunch of people in this church that are already there. And the rest of you um, are maybe a lot like me. Like, I was there, but only because I had a deadline. Like, I realized we were having this meeting on Friday night, and I need to go first, so i got to start praying about this. i got to start really thinking about this, having conversations with my wife. And, and so we did that, and there are a lot of you that are like that. Like, so let me just tell you, this whole thing is going to end in two weeks. April 7th is our Commitment Sunday, so now is the time to really engage and to really start praying and really start having uh, conversations with your spouse so that you'll be ready for that, um, that day that's coming up on April 7th. But I know that most of you are still in process, and one of the things that we've been trying to do during this series is to let you kind of see how others who are in process are doing with this. So today, um, we're going to let you take a, a, a look at a video that we made of Kim Vine talking about how she and her family are, are working through this. So watch this with me. So my name is Kim Vine, and I was at the very first service for White Pine, so 17 plus years. And I've been the children's ministry director for a little over 11. Yeah, I mean, 
It's not a coincidence. This is a time that financially is rather challenging for my family. So it's going to be interesting how we as a family decide what this is going to look like for us um, in the midst of college tuitions and running our own business in a time when it's not a profitable <laughs> gain for us in this business. But I think that where I'm moving towards is the freedom that happens when you just let go of all of it and you say, God, it's all yours and whatever you want is great. We'll, we'll give it back to you because when you hold on to something too tightly, you, you live in fear and panic and anxiety of losing it. And if you recognize that it's not really yours and it's fine to give it back because this matters so much more than the things that you think you need, it really does help you breathe easier and just think about things differently. So I am on this journey as much as everybody else. Tony and I, as a family, are on this journey just as much as everybody else. We, I don't know. I don't know where, where God is going to take us. I certainly don't have a number in our head yet. But I do know that we're going to feel freedom and hopefully joy and less stress by giving more. So it'll be kind of cool to see how God does that one. <laughs> so many choices out there and it's overwhelming and it fuels anxiety and if we can scale back and say what really matters is it that we're giving our kids every possible music lesson and every possible sports travel team or every possible opportunity is that eternal is that lasting or is it what happens on a Sunday morning and throughout the week. And I am not saying that that's gonna be an easy decision and I'm not saying that any of those things are bad, but if we can all just step back and really think about our relationship with our creator and who he wants us to be and how he wants us to live our lives, I do think that some of that stuff will fall away and it'll be okay. And for the rest of this community to see that we are prioritizing this kind of a life and, and this kind of investment, that alone can speak volumes to other people. So by how we choose to put God first can reveal to other people who God is. So like I said, I'm right there with everybody else. I don't have the answers and yes, it is going to be hard and we're, <laughs> we're trying to pay for college education and what does that look like for us? But this is worth investing in and it's okay to choose something that isn't always tangible and isn't always um, financially reasonable, maybe, I guess, if you're thinking about investing in something, but this is, this is real and this does matter. It is eternal and the, the pay, the payoff now with when you can see your kids learning how to treat other people the way they want to be treated and trusting God instead of whatever else is out in the world and having that sense of who they were created to be and living that way, it really does make it much more simple than it has to be.
Well, I, I love um, seeing Kim talk about that. And one of the things that I think a lot of us can relate to is that laughter that is sort of like a stressful laugh. Did you notice that? And she kind of laughs like, oh, this is hard. <laughs> you know, it's like that's what, it, that's what, we, that's what we feel like, you know. Um, multiple kids in college for her, and, and, there, and I relate to that very much. I, feel, I think that for many of us, thinking about making a really big commitment is almost like going through, like, you know, they talk about the grief process, and Kim kind of talked about the giving process, where there's first that clinginess, you know, I want to hold on to what I have, and then the joy that comes when I finally let go, I totally relate to that. Um, for me, the process, again, because I had to be a little bit ahead, was there was some of that. There was some of that holding on, and then when, for, for both Robin and me, and then when we finally let go, it's been nothing but joy ever since then, and I just hope that, so, that many more of, of us experience that. In fact, I want to just pray for all of us as we continue through this process, and uh, also as we study God's Word today. So let's pray. Lord, we, um, we know that what we're doing, whether it's trying to get truth into our hearts and our lives today, or whether it's actually being permanently changed in this six-week-long, really two-year-long process that we're going through, we know that that's all a work of your Spirit. We can't manufacture that. We can't flesh it out. There's no tricks, there's no manipulating that we can do to get there. Real, lasting, permanent change is what you specialize in, God. And I pray that for every single person here, wherever they are in their relationship with you, that you would transform them, that you would make them more of what you created them to be. Use today's message to do that. Use this, uh, this whole process that we're going through to do that. We give it all to you, and we trust that as we give our hearts to you, that you'll provide everything that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I've lived in Maine now for um, almost nine years, and I totally agree with those who say that life in Maine is the way life should be. But there is one thing that I don't like about Maine. No, it's not winter, although... I'll admit, by March, I've enjoyed about as much of winter as I can handle, but my real only complaint about Maine is that I will never get to call myself a Mainer. I don't think that's fair. Um, Actually, I know people whose parents were born in Maine and whose grandparents were born in Maine and whose children were born in Maine, but for some fluky reason, they were, their parents were not in Maine when they were born. And even though they brought them back before they turned one, and they've been in Maine ever since, and they intend to die here, they will never be a Mainer. Just like me, they will always be from away. I don't think that's fair. I think there ought to be at least some kind of naturalization path that you can take. <laughs> You know, I read a newspaper article by George Smith, a Mainer, who proposed a college course that would allow those who were from away to become real Mainers. Um, So here are some of the requirements that he suggests. First, complain about the weather every day. Go to the local cafe for breakfast and still be there for lunch. Use the following phrases at least once a week. Wicked good. See ya. It's some old cold today, and my car just got all, you know, Mainers? Stove up, of course, yeah, obviously. Um, 
he says you have to, and here's some more requirements. Go to the dump empty and come home with a full load. <laughs> Attend six bean suppers and then start enjoying bean suppers every Saturday night at home. Learn to identify the tracks and droppings of at least six wild animals. And while you are out in the woods, find some moose droppings and make them into a necklace. (laughs) Shop only at Rennie's and Martin's for one month. Find some items you would like to replace and make do with them. And dress down often. Doesn't that just capture some of the things that make Maine like like a unique place? And um, with with its... own little quirks and everything, I think most of us here would say, I'll be perfectly happy if I can live the rest of my life here. I, I know there's probably some of you who are saying, no, no, not me. I, I'm here under duress. I want to go back to where I came from. But whatever, whatever place it is on this planet that feels, feels most like home to you, let me ask you this. How would you live your life differently if you knew that you were about to move to a place that is either infinitely better than the best place you've ever lived or infinitely worse than the worst place you've ever lived? And what if you will live so long in that new location that, relatively speaking, your whole life up to this point will feel like nothing more than that? Today we're talking about perspective. And the reason why this topic is a part of this series is because living a God-first life doesn't make sense to someone who thinks that this life is all there is. And if I can be even more specific, making financial sacrifices to help build a permanent church facility in a strategic location seems like a foolish way to spend your money until you see your life and the lives of all of those who live around you, not just from birth to death, but beyond death into whatever comes next. A man by the name of Heath Johnson has written about what it's like to live without depth perception. He actually has excellent vision in both eyes, but he was born cross-eyed. And, and in order to kind of correct the distorted vision that he had, his brain trained his eyes when he was just a little kid, trained his eyes to only, only, so that only one of them worked at a time. It's like he'd, the brain would shut off one eye and he'd look through the other. So he could choose which eye he looked out of, but he could never look out of both eyes at the same time. And he had a surgery when he was five that, to correct the problem. It did correct it cosmetically, but at, by that point he was already hardwired to see out of only one eye at a time. And so he never developed what's called binocular vision, the, that, that ability to see the same objects from two slightly different vantage points. And that binocular vision is what gives us depth perception. This guy has never had depth perception. Uh, perception. He said that he's lived his whole world, his whole life in, this. here's the term that he gave it, I live in flat world, he said. Flat world. That's a pretty good word to describe how most people live. Now, we can perceive distance with our eyes, but when it comes to seeing our earthly lives in the context of eternity, we have no depth perception. You know, the Apostle Paul said that if flat world is reality, 
If, if death really is the end of life, then those of us who take the risk of following Jesus are making a bad bet. In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, he says, If our hope in Christ is good for this life only and no more, then we deserve pity more than anyone else in the world. I like the way the message says it. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But what if life is not flat? What if it really does last forever? Paul certainly believed it does. If your Bible is open right now to 2 Corinthians 4, look at verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, wait, wait, when you see the word therefore, you've got to try to figure out what it's there for because it means that what he's about to say is, is somehow based on what he has already said. And what he has already said in 2 Corinthians 4 is that a life devoted to telling others about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ can be costly because many of the people that you share that good news with don't want to hear it. In fact, they can be downright hostile to it. They might even be violent in trying to shut you up. That's why to Paul, the Christian life makes no sense in flat world. But he says in verse 14, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. He says, listen, life after death, that's not a fairy tale. The verifiable resurrection of Jesus confirms that it is real. And therefore, verse 16, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, amen to that, yet inwardly, We are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In other words, no matter how hard life gets or how endless our suffering seems, it is both fleeting and lightweight relative to the eternal awesomeness that is coming. And so, verse 18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The message says it this way, there's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow, but the things we can't see now will last forever. Okay, so if that's true, we're just going to try to put life on a timeline. Let me just do this. I'll I'll put three lives on on the same timeline. I'll start with Kyle Albayati, three years old, little blonde-haired kid, just as cute as could be, died tragically in a drowning. I did his funeral, three years old. So we'll put his life on the timeline. And then we'll put um, the life of Donna Denham on the timeline. She was 48 years old. She was on her way to a training session uh, for a missions trip. She stopped on the side of the highway to help someone whose car had slid off the road. And while she was there helping that person, another car hydroplaned off the highway, hitting Donna and killing her instantly. I did her funeral too. 
And I did the funeral of Lena Colburn, a godly woman who died at the age of 92. So you've got a a 3-year-old, 48-year-old, 92-year-old. There's a big difference between those ages, but you have to see the, the timeline as it really is. So it doesn't, it doesn't just go from, you know, like 1 to 100. It keeps going, and it keeps going, and it keeps going forever and ever and ever. And the further it goes out, the more those lives get squeezed together until really all of their lives take up only a tiny dot on the timeline of eternity. And Kyle and Donna and Lena are still very much alive. And Paul would not call the realm in which they now live the afterlife. If anything, he would call it where we live now the before life. Check out his perspective here in 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if, our, if the earthly tent we live in, and by tent he does not mean the shelter in which we live, he means the body in which we live. If that tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So when Paul uses that word life, is he talking about life before death or is he talking about life after death? He's talking about life after death. In fact, comparing the body that we live in now to the body that we will live in when we're in heaven is like comparing a tent to a house. You might say, well, you don't know what kind of a tent I've got. I've got a great one. It's an REI. It's, a, it's an L.L. Bean. You know, it's, this, this tent is awesome. Great, you have, a, you have a great tent. Would you trade it for your house? Or would you take the house over the tent? Well, you'll always take the house over, over the tent because you want longevity. You want durability. Paul says, listen, the day is coming when we're no longer going to live in these tents, some very impressive now, but ultimately, like every other tent, is one day going to be leaky and sagging. We're not going to live in those forever. We're going to live in an eternal house in heaven. In fact, he says, this is what's amazing, he says, that's what we were created for. Not for this life, but for that life. Look at verse 5. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. For what very purpose? For, for e- the purpose of living forever. God created us to live forever. We hear this thing like, you know, death is like a natural part of life. It's the great circle of life. No, it's not. God never intended for death to be part of life. You want to know why it hurts so bad? You want to know why you could never make peace with the death of someone you love and with the fact that you're going to die? It's because it's not natural. It's the most unnatural thing in the world. Death is a curse that was caused by sin. God's original plan 
was for us to live forever in his presence, which is to say in paradise. And he was so determined to reverse that curse that he sent his only son into the world to die in our place so that we wouldn't have to. That's the gospel. That's the truth that we believe so deeply that we will share it with anyone, even with those who don't want to hear it. We will endure persecution. We will even accept martyrdom if that's what it takes to get the word out because we know that this life, whether short or long, is just a dot on the timeline of eternity. That was Paul's perspective. And life there on the line for those who follow Jesus will be far better than life here because there we will no longer say, I just feel like something's missing in my life. And almost everybody feels that here because what's missing is like face-to-face intimacy with God. We're just not going to get that in this life. Oh, we'll get a foretaste of it Because as Paul says in verse 5, God has given us the Spirit, His own Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. But the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives is nothing more than a hint of what it's going to be like to actually be with Jesus in the flesh. Therefore, Paul says in verse 6, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, We're away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Essentially, Paul says, I can't wait to leave this world behind and start to really live. In the book of Philippians, he says that the only benefit to dying later rather than sooner is more time to help other people follow Jesus. For to me, he says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Isn't that a radical perspective? I mean, that makes no sense at all in flat world. But it makes perfect sense to those who have depth perception. William Barclay said, "No, No man need fear the years, for they bring him nearer, not to death, but to God. But I want to be careful not to, like, oversimplify life. The Bible certainly does not depict our transition from earth to eternity, like Willy Wonka's doorway to the chocolate room, in, in, in which everyone from Charlie Bucket to Veruca Salt experiences equal delight. No, first you have to walk into a courtroom, and which door you walk through after that depends on thing, how things go with the judge. Actually, there are different opinions as to exactly when we will stand before God in judgment. But that we will, that every single one of us will, is not in doubt. The book of Hebrews says that people are destined to die once and after that to face 
judgment. And so Paul says here in verse 9, we make it our goal to please the Lord, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Seriously, if you think that our quality of life after death has nothing to do with the choices that we make before death, you're ignoring passages like this. Paul's writing to believers here. He's not writing just to a general audience. He's writing to people who, who, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, and he says to them the same thing that Jesus said in all kinds of different ways, that heaven will be better for some than it is for others. Those who live for the line will enjoy eternity more than those who make themselves at home in flat world. And, and we're just talking about distinctions that will exist in heaven. But you do know, don't you, that not everyone will go there. Look with me at one more passage, Revelation chapter 20. So you're going back toward the back of the Bible. Um, it's page 1004, if you have one of the church Bibles. Revelation chapter 20. This is another passage that gives us a glimpse of the day of judgment. Now again, there's some complexity as to the timing of this. In fact, some people think that um, this is a different day of judgment than the one that Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians. But nonetheless, this vision that the Spirit of God gave to the Apostle John is an accurate picture of the future. Revelation 20 and verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades, Hades is uh, another word for hell, it's like temporary hell, it's the holding tank, where you go after you die if you don't get into heaven. That he says, death and, and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Isn't it bad enough that there's a first death? And now here it is, there's a, there's a second death. And this one is an eternal death. It, it, it's, it's, it's to be sentenced to a place that is described with the most frightening imagery imaginable. And we might have all kinds of different feelings about that, but the one thing that all of us would agree is, I don't want to go there. So, how do I avoid it? Verse 15 says, Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So, okay, then how do I get my name written in the book of life? Most people think, in fact, I'll say it this way, most people are so sure of this that they don't even listen when somebody has a different idea. They know that it's about our deeds. You earn your way into heaven. That's how you do it. 
there's a problem with that. No matter how much good you do, you also sin, right? Anybody here never sinned at all? No, the Bible says all have sinned. And it says the wages of sin is death. Separation from God. Not just the first death, but even the second death. Eternal separation. So, what we have to understand is that if we're just left to ourselves, if we have no outside help, we're not going to have our names written in the book of life. All there is is the books of deeds. The good things we've done and the bad things we've done. And the judge has a standard of perfection. Not going to make it. But the same verse that says that the wages of sin is death goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So every single person has a choice to make. You have a choice to make. You can go with the wages plan, which is guaranteed to land you in in the lake of fire, or you can go with the gift of God plan, which leads to eternal life. What is the gift of God? The gift of God is the death of Jesus on the cross. Because what happened on the cross was that Jesus died for you and me. He was our substitute. God punished his own son for everything that you and I have ever done wrong. And if we're just willing to accept that gift of the payment of his life in place of ours, then we get our names written in the book of life. That book's going to be opened. The judge, God Almighty, is going to look down. He's going to see your name there. And he's going to open the door of heaven to you. And what will that be like? Keep reading. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. This is a a passage describing heaven as it unfolds over time. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. How close will he be to us? Verse 4 He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Now again, heaven's not going to be the same for everyone. But John is giving us a clear enough picture of both heaven and hell to know which destination is preferable. Now, I know, I'm very well aware of the fact that talking about hell is not a popular thing to do. It's kind of a taboo subject. Even in many churches it is. Because nobody wants to be charged with trying to scare people into becoming a Christian. 
I get that, but I just don't see it that way. I see people sitting comfortably in a burning building. And even though they can't feel the heat or see the flames, they are in terrible danger. And I am not being melodramatic when I say that most of the 50,000 people who live in the communities northeast of Portland are in that very situation. They are living in flat world, oblivious to eternity, and flat world is on fire. And because the love of God has been poured into our hearts, we can't help but do something about that. C.T. Studd was 18 years old when a man he did not know knocked on the door of his family's upper-class home and told him the good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus. C.T. believed in Christ on that day, and he knew that his eternal destiny was secure. The thing is, his his faith didn't really change his life because what he was really passionate about was playing cricket. He was an excellent athlete. And so cricket was like his whole, his whole world until in his mid-20s he read an article written by an atheist which read in part, if I firmly believed, as millions say they do, that the knowledge of a practice of religion in this life influences destiny in another, then religion would mean everything to me. I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Religion would be my first waking thought and my last image before sleep sank me into unconsciousness. I should labor in its cause alone. I would take thought for the morrow of eternity alone. I would esteem one soul gained for heaven worth a life of suffering. Earthly consequences would never stay in my head or seal my lips. Earth, its joys and its griefs would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and on the immortal souls around me, soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. I would go forth to the world and preach to it in season and out of season, and my text would be, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Those convicting words changed the whole direction of C.T. Studd's life. He decided to become a missionary to China. And then two other things happened at about the same time in his life. First, he inherited a great deal of money. And he got engaged. Before he even knew how much money he had had inherited, he started giving giving it away uh, to missionaries, pastors, evangelists, until he had less than $5,000 left. And when he got engaged, he gave that money to his fiancée, who was also a missionary to China. And she said to him, Charlie, what did the Lord tell the rich man to do? And then together they gave the rest of the money away. Lived the rest of their lives on faith alone. For the next 45 years, from age 25 to 70, C.T. Studd served as a missionary, first in China, then in India, and finally in Africa. He wrote two famous mini-poems. One reads, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop a yard from the gate of hell. And another one, even more memorable, 
Only one life, which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Something else he wrote that is less catchy but equally potent is this. Let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer Jesus Christ. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. I love that. And there's a guy with really good depth perception. And it is depth perception. It is an eternal perspective that compels us to do all that we can to share the message of Jesus, not just locally and not just internationally, but also regionally. It's because there's no other church like White Pine anywhere in our region that we are willing to take on this expensive challenge of building a permanent facility in a strategic location. This is all about living for the line. I was at a meeting a few weeks ago that was attended by about 200 Christians. And at one point, the speaker said, in a hundred years, you'll all be dead. Wait. Nope, you'll all be dead. And he was right. But it's what we do between now and then that will determine the quality of eternal life, not just for us, but also for those that God has given us the resources to reach. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we will be faithful to use the resources that you have given us, our time, our, our, our spiritual gifts, our finances, whatever it is, our voices. Use everything that we are and everything that we have to help more people live forever. And we know that that the chances are really good that there's somebody sitting in this room who has not yet made a decision to entrust, entrust themselves to Jesus and what he did for them. They're still trusting in themselves. Help them to repent, to make that U-turn in their lives, to come back to you and to receive the gift of forgiveness and new life that Jesus offers. I'm going to just do, I'm just going to talk to you right now in the spirit of prayer, if that's you, and invite you right now to make that decision. Just say to God, I know that I have sinned, but thank you that Jesus died for my sins. I want him to come into my life, to cleanse me, and to make me the person I was created to be. Thank you, God, that you are so faithful to answer every sincere prayer to invite Christ in. And thank you that that is like like a mustard seed that grows in us and, and changes everything, including our perspective on life. May we today, this week, And for the rest of our lives, see life differently because of what you have revealed to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.